Well, I'm grateful to be back uh, with you on a Sunday, and uh, we are picking up in our study of Isaiah, right where we left off, so we're going to be in chapter 54 today, so if you would, please, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54, and we're going to look at the entire chapter together today, 17 verses. All right, so I, I kind of want to lay out my plan for you today. Uh, as I was telling the elders earlier today, I, I, don't want, I don't want us to get bogged down with some details today. I don't want us to get lost in the imagery and the metaphor of the text. I don't want us to get lost in the historicity of the details. I don't want us to get lost in the comparison of how the New Testament understands this text. I don't want us to get lost or misunderstood at, at any point. And so I'm... What, what I'm going to do, uh, understanding that that is our goal, what I'm going to do is this, is I'm going to go through verse, uh, basically verse 12 with you, and we're just going to lay out the basics of what the text is saying. What we're going to do at that point is we're going to go to a passage where Paul quotes uh, Isaiah 54.1, and we will recognize at that point why we need Paul's interpretation because we're gonna be led down a road together where if we were left to ourselves, we would be wondering what in the world this has to do with anything. Um, I, so I, I hope to first confuse you, and then I, I hope to lead you to a desire to want to have Paul's proper interpretation of how we should, in the new covenant under Christ, be understanding these things. And then we're gonna finish out the text through uh, really verses 11 through 17 take together as a unit and we're going to bring it home to some application at the end okay uh, so let's look at our text let's see what it says and uh, hopefully bring just some some clarity to the situation but and before we get to clarity we're going to get to cloudiness first okay so let's look at it now just remember that the text that we're reading is coming on the heels of what the servant song the servant song that we took uh, six, seven weeks uh, to go through together. So that we began in, in uh, 52 verse 13 and we went through 5312, which is a servant song together. It took us seven weeks to do that. And we know that that was about Jesus Christ. We know that that was about his uh, crucifixion, his work as the servant of God, taking the place of us. And so that was substitutionary atonement that was necessary, right? So... This was the servant of God who was faithful to God in all things. He accomplished redemption for the people of God. All that's great. So where could the text possibly go next that could give us any more hope than what we already have? Uh, well, here we go. Verse, chapter 54, verse 1. Let's look just uh, as we begin first couple of verses. It says, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Really, the word inhabit is necessary there. And people will inhabit the desolate cities, okay? So we'll stop right there. 
So it, it's interesting already because I think, again, this is one of those passages that as we're doing our devotional reading through the Bible and we get to a passage like this and we read it, it says, sing, O barren one. And you say, I don't know who this is talking about. I'm going to default to that it's talking about me because that's what we do with the Bible. Uh, it's probably talking about me. I don't really relate to this because, first of all, I'm not a woman. I don't know what any of this has to do with anything. Let's just move on to a text that's more meaningful and I can clearly apply to my life. That kind of by default is what we do when we're looking for devotional reading, right? We either force a text to be talking about us, which most of the time we're wrong, or we just move on and we find a text that clearly does talk about us and is easy to interpret. This text holds so much for us, but we're already kind of led into a mystery of who this barren woman is. Uh, sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Who is that? We just were talking about God's servant and Jesus. It's not, it's not the servant. And that was never spoken of as a female, right? Uh, that, and, and barren. So this is not the servant of God. This is not the Messiah that is the barren one. But whoever the barren one is should now sing and should rejoice. For what reason? Well, because... Um, you who have not been in labor, here's the reason you should rejoice is because the children of the desolate one, which is you, the barren one, will be more than the children of her who is married. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, there's a barren woman who is desolate, empty, right? No children. And she should now rejoice because her children are going to be more than the children of, of the one who can naturally have children. So, there's two kind of ideas of a woman presented to us, and one is a barren woman, and she's desolate, and she is mourning because she is desolate, she is barren. And especially within that society at that time, to be barren was shameful. And you say, well, how can you help that? Well, I agree with you, how can you help that? But at the same time, it was shameful. And a woman would feel that shame that she couldn't provide children. And so what's being spoken of here is, is let's do away with that shame. That's actually going to be said here in a second. And I want to speak words of hope to you. And I want you to sing instead of mourn. I want you to rejoice. Why? Because you're about to have children. But don't think of it in the way that natural women have children. You're going to have children in a different way. So who is this woman that we're talking about? It, I'm going to just let you know it's not you and it's not me. Okay, we are, we are not the barren woman. So let's not go there with it. So then, and it's not the Messiah. So that's confusing. So who is the barren woman? We're going we're gonna to find out. We're going to find out. It says in verse 2, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords and strengthen your stakes. Okay, so that could be talking about a, uh, that could be talking about a group of people potentially, uh, but it's a barren woman. So who is this? What we know so far is that she's given instruction. Uh, you have a little tent. They lived in a tent. And all you need is a little tent when it's just you because this woman is going to be identified also as being a widow. So she doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have children. She lives alone. And that requires a small tent. So what the Lord speaks to her is, now I want you to prepare for this. I want you to enlarge your tent. Move your stakes get longer cords, get more material, do what you need to do. You need to make your tent bigger because the children are coming. Okay, that's good. How big should I make my tent? Well, verse three. You will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and people the desolate cities. How big should this tent be? It needs to cover the earth. So get to work. 
This is a big old tent. Okay? So what we have here so far is an unidentified woman who is barren, has no children, and has a husband. Okay? Are we there? That's all we need to understand at this point. But there is a promise made to this barren woman that you should now sing and rejoice because the children are coming, not in a natural way, but in a supernatural way, and it's going to be more children than any natural woman has ever had. Okay? All right, let's look at the next little section here, verses 4 through 8. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. Okay, so that, we understand that already so far, don't we? Okay, so you're not going to be ashamed anymore. You're not going to be disgraced anymore because you don't have children. Um, and you're also a, a widow, and you're not going to remember that pain and grief anymore either. For, here's the reason why, your maker, sh probably should in your Bible have a capital M right there. Uh, your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. That's who the wife is, deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Okay, so the picture expands. So now we have this barren woman, who we still don't know who it is, but a barren woman uh, who is also a widow and is grieved and bitter in, in spirit because of the loss and uh, emptiness of her life. But then we see that the husband then takes this woman as his own wife. That's good. This is good news. This should be good news, right? So this barren woman should now rejoice because who's going to be your husband in order to produce offspring, you understand? Who is going to be your husband? Well, your maker. The Lord, the Lord. He is the God of the whole earth. That one is going to be your husband and he is going to produce children for you. Okay? Now then it says in verse 7, which is interesting, for a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my space from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Okay. So he was angry with her for a time. But that time has passed, and God is no longer angry, and now he's having compassion on her. And he says, I'm not going to be angry with you anymore. Uh, I'm going to welcome you back in, and you're going to be my wife, and you're going to be my wife uh, forever, as it is about to say. Um, so let's just look at verses 9 and 10. Now, this whole idea of rejection, we're going to come back to that. Why is it that this woman was rejected and he was angry with her? We're going to come back to that. But for our summary of what the text is saying, let's continue on for the moment. Verses 9 and 10. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. 
One thing I just want to note to you as we're reading this and we're trying to come to understand just the kind of really the narrative of the situation um, is that all the yous in here, these second person pronouns, okay, you, your, uh, they're all singular. It's all talking about one individual, okay? So a lot of times when we read our Bible, the you is plural, even though the you looks the same to our eye in English. It's you, uh, and, but it's also you when it's, it's you when it's one person, and it's you when it's a million people uh, for us, but not so in the original languages. But in the original languages, this is all singular. This is all an individual. So this is all talking about that barren woman. So don't be tempted to take what you're reading here as promises of hope is that you take in you, as some theologies say, I'm going to claim this text as my own and speak it over my life that the one who was barren is barren no longer, and you claim that over your life. That We have no warrant for doing that. You're taking a promise that wasn't made to you, and you're making it a promise of your own. Okay? So who is this promise made to? And who is this barren woman? And who are her offspring? Some very interesting questions for us to think about because at the end of the day, what do we want from this text? Uh, to know what we should do with it, right? Isn't that our goal as we're reading the word of God? This is the word of God. You know, this, this text here, these 17 verses are just as much the word of God as John 3, 16. Did you know that? And each word is equally as valid and profitable for us as John 3, 16. Do you know that to be true? So what is, what is here for us? What should we understand? Okay, so this is like the days of Noah. The days of Noah, good or bad days? Not so good. The days of Noah, uh, the whole earth was flooded and, and many, 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 many people died a gruesome death, including women and children, yes, and many animals. So uh, if you're, if you're uh, not, not, not regular around here, we, we believe that this, the stories of the Bible are actually true. And that, yes, even this story about Noah and the flooding of the whole earth, and there was an, uh, a gigantic boat where there were actually animals on it, and God closed that, and he, he repopulated the earth from just those people and animals. Yes, we actually believe that that's true, that that actually happened. So when he says, it's like the days of Noah to me, we're actually kind of thinking, that's, is this good news or bad news? Because I don't want the days of Noah. I don't want a flood over the whole earth, but what do we know about that story is that after the earth was flooded and the waters uh, subsided from the earth, what did God promise? That he would never do that again. In fact, we know that the way that things are going down in the end, and it's not with water. This time it's, it's fire. And it says all things will be burned up in the end. That's how the earth is done away with and there's a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, but in order for there to be something new, what do you have to do with the old? Do away with it, and this time then it's coming, it's, it's gonna be done away with fire this time, because he promised he would never do it with water again, right? So he says, this is kind of like, this is like the days of Noah to me, in the sense that I swore that the waters of Noah would, would no more go over the earth, and so in the same way, I have sworn that I will no longer be angry with you. So just as valid as that, promise was that he would no longer flood the earth. He says, this is how valid my promise is to you in this moment. As I was no longer angry with the earth because I, I judged it. That was judgment. You know, the waters were judgment over the whole earth and their sin. And he says, and so I judged the earth and so my anger subsided and all was resolved. Now, in this sense, 
my anger is resolved with you, barren woman, who is a widow and now to be my bride. I am no longer angry with you. My anger has subsided just as my anger subsided in the days of Noah. And just as my promise was valid for all eternity, uh, that I will no longer flood the earth, so my promise to you of peace is valid forever. So I will forever be at peace with you. Okay? So it's permanent. Okay, we continue on. Isaiah 54, verse 11. So we're about to somewhat identify who this barren woman is, finally. Uh, but as we identify who this barren woman is, things only get confusing from this point. Oh, afflicted one. We still don't know who it is, but it's the barren woman. Storm-tossed, not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stone. Okay. Are you edified by that? What does all that mean? Um, oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed one, I will set your stones in antimony. Now, without Googling it, I'm just curious. Does anyone in the room know what that is? Not a one. No one knows what that is. Okay, I didn't know either. It's stone, a type of stone. It's, it's actually a stone that would be ground up, and it was used as, as black eye makeup, specifically in Egypt. You know the, the black eye makeup that they use? has nothing to do with makeup here. It has to do with the fact that it's stone. Okay? And some, actually, this word is used in other places, and it's translated eye makeup in our Old Testament. But that's not the point here. The point here is that it's stone. I'm going to take your stones and set them in stone. What, is that, what does that say to us? Is that they're fixed permanently. Now, how many women have stones that need to be fixed in stone? That's confusing. Why does this woman have stones? I will set your stones in antimony. I will lay your foundations with sapphires. How many women have foundations that need to be laid with sapphires? This is weird. All of a sudden, we're starting to understand that this woman is, in fact, a city. This woman is a city, and she is barren, desolate. And it's not only that God is going to lay a foundation that's just useful. The picture that we're getting is that he's going to lay it as a solid foundation and make it beautiful. He's gonna, why, why are we taking our foundations and putting sapphires in it? Is that necessary that we do that? I didn't put sapphires in the foundation of my home. I suppose I, that was an option. I didn't do that. Why are we doing that? And then I will, I will take your pinnacles of, and I will put agate and then your gates carbuncles. You, you familiar with carbuncles? <laughs> what are carbuncles? Anybody know? It's not a skin condition, by the way. They're rubies. Rubies. So this is all about your this city being made solid as a foundation of, of God. He's doing it, but he's inlaying it with precious stones, making it beautiful. So um, then what about the children? Because we know that the woman is now starting to be identified as a city, which is true, but what about the children? Well, the children, of course, would be interpreted as what? The inhabitants of that city. 
right? So currently, as it stands, there is a city that is barren and desolate, but one day it will be no longer. And that city is not going to be a place of mourning, but instead it's going to be a beautiful, permanent, wonderful place. And there's going to be children there. From where? From everywhere. Remember how big your tent needed to be? They're going to be from everywhere. So we're starting to get the picture, right? Now, what's, what's uh, I, I use the word interesting a lot because I just, I don't have another word. I, maybe I need a thesaurus. I, this is very interesting because Paul quotes from Isaiah 54 verse 1 and gives us a, a very detailed understanding of how he has interpreted all that's been said. Because we, we're, we're asking ourselves, well, that's kind of a, that's, that's, an, that's interesting. Okay, I need some synony- synonyms for interesting. That's, a, that's an interesting situation about this barren woman and the city. It's like a city and the children they have. All that's very interesting to me. Uh, but what does this have to do with anything? Paul takes it and he says it has to do with everything, actually. How could this have to do with everything? It actually has to do with everything. So I want to show that to you. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Everything, he says, everything. It has to do with everything. This is it. This is, this is what it's all about, actually. This is at the heart of it. So we're going to be in Galatians 4, but we're going to begin in verse 21, if you can go, down, go there. So if you remember the book of Galatians, Paul is, is, is uh, happy and thrilled with the Galatians because of how faithful they are to the gospel, or the exact opposite of that. He, he's not happy with them, is he? He's not happy with them and the things that they've been doing, and so this continues on. And he's trying to help them better understand what the gospel is in contrast to what they've been believing. So in verse 21 then, what does it say? Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, and then Isaiah 54.1 is quoted. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those who have a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, is, so also it is now. He's saying that there's, uh, there's friction between uh, the brothers, the groups, right? The, the children of promise and the children of the flesh. And there was friction then and there's friction now. That's all he's saying. Verse 30, but what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, here's his point. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now you might ask, what does that have to do with all that we've been reading in Isaiah 54 about this barren woman 
in this city? Well, if you were reading with me, you noticed that this was about women in cities, didn't, didn't you? Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. So it's about a woman, and yet it's about a city. Right, so is Isaiah 54. It's about a woman, but it's also about a city, right? And he says, now these women are two covenants. So I understand there's a lot going on right now. There's, there's a lot of information here. So I wanted to, as much as I possibly could, simplify what we have going on here. And so what I did by default is I made a chart, of course. So let's look at what we have. I want to illustrate what Paul is saying. Two options. We're talking about, this is, this is, this is Galatians 4, okay? What we just read in Galatians 4, breaking it down. There are two sons, and they were produced by two different methods. So the first son, let's look at the left half, was produced by a particular method. Now, if you remember, uh, there was a man named Abraham. His, his original name was actually Abram, but then he was renamed Abraham, and he was promised a son by God. And not only a son, but how many descendants? As many as the stars in the sky, as many as the grains of sand on the shore. And so the issue was what? Him and his wife didn't have any children, and his wife, Sarah, was barren. He, she was a barren woman. And the, the bigger issue is that they were getting old. He was 86 years old, and he didn't have any children. And so they got together and decided, well, maybe the way that you're going to have a son is not through Sarah. And this was Sarah and Abraham talking, and they said, well, let's try another path here. You take my servant, Hagar, and you have a child through her. And maybe this is the way that God intends for us to have children. So this is method one. Now, in method one, it was understood as an effort of man and an effort of the flesh to try to produce something that God had promised to produce. And so Hagar, being a slave, could only produce what? Sons of the flesh who were enslaved who had no inheritance. It's very important that we understand that part. The option, the first method that Abraham pursued was to have a child through Hagar, not his wife. And she, because she was a slave, she could only ever have children that were of the flesh who were enslaved and had no inheritance. The name of that child was Ishmael. Okay, that's method one. God then said, don't you understand that's, that's not even what I said? I didn't say, go and try to have a baby any way you can. That's not what I said. I said, I am going to do this. And I'm doing it through the natural means of you and your wife. So then he had to wait in excruciating 13 years. Uh, when 13 years after 86 years, if my math is correct, is 99 years. He is 99 years old. Yes, that's a real age. 99 years old. It's not metaphorical. It's not, oh, well, they calculated years differently back then or something. No, it literally means our same idea of 99 years old. It's a 99-year-old man who, whose wife is about 90. And they are promised to have a child. And Sarah, in turn, does what? Laughs. Why would she laugh? Because that's a joke. 
A 90-year-old woman is not going to have a baby with a 99-year-old man. If you didn't know that, some young audience, you can't have a baby at that age unless it's miraculous, right? Which is exactly what God intended. He takes away the physical, natural means in order to show that what he's doing was by his own sovereign hand. It's amazing, isn't it? By the way, just take a time out here just for a second. Isn't it true that many times when we give up our attempts to produce something and our efforts fail, and many times it takes us down to the dumps, that that is the point that God intended us to get to, and then he shows us how great and wonderful and miraculous he truly is. So he takes away the natural means to show who he is and his great power. That when you thought there was nothing that could be done, that's when he steps in and does what he does best. Okay? So there was a second means that a child was produced, and that was through his natural wife, Sarah, and she was a free woman. And through this free woman, God provided miraculously a son. Believe it or not, this 90-year-old woman with a 99-year-old man, what a sight to see, became pregnant. And she had a son, and this son's name was Isaac. And he was the son of the promise, not this other one. And he was free. And he had an inheritance because he was miraculously produced by God through this barren woman. That all makes sense? So, Paul then says, of this situation, this may be interpreted allegorically. Oh boy, here's some more symbolism. But again, I'm just replacing some details and showing you how this allegory makes sense. So here's the next one. Here's how all this works together. These two women are representative of two covenants. Okay, so we replace the women with covenants and locations. Okay? I see some of you trying to figure out what you're going to do about my chart here, and maybe you're writing it down, maybe you're taking a picture of it. If you'd like, I can provide this to you. Okay? All right? You like that, Janelle? Okay. Does that give you some relief? Okay, sure. I can do that. So these two women are representative of two covenants. On the left-hand side, you have the old covenant, and on the right-hand side, you have the new covenant. On the left-hand side, you have the present Jerusalem. On the right-hand side, you have the Jerusalem that is above, that is the heavenly Jerusalem. So on the left-hand side, you have children that are only slaves, whereas on the right-hand side, you have children who are free. On the left-hand side, you have no inheritance because they're sons of the flesh. On the right-hand side, you have sons that are free, and they have an inheritance. Those of the old covenant have no inheritance if they are trying to produce their inheritance by works of the flesh. This is the whole point. There was an old covenant system, and that system wasn't meant to get you to God. That was Paul's issue with the Galatian church. They thought that if we believe in God, we must be doing the works of the flesh, right? Such as circumcision, things like that which were Jewish rituals and rites. He says, don't you realize that those are not necessary? Works of the flesh are not going to produce an inheritance through God. He doesn't do it that way. It's not about the works of the flesh. It's about the free gift of God and his provision that you could never attain on your own. He gives it. It's not something you work for. It's something he gives freely. And only if, and only if, 
you are a son of the promise that you have an inheritance. So that old system, you can't come to God through that system. The new system, this is how you come to God. That's representative of the old covenant, which is found where? In the present Jerusalem, Mount Sinai specifically. Why Mount Sinai? Because that's where God delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses and the rest of the law. So it's about women, but at the same time, it's also about a city. And that city is Jerusalem. There is a present Jerusalem, which Paul indicates, and every child that is belonging to that present Jerusalem is enslaved and has no inheritance. They are sons of the flesh. But now if you, if you belong to the, the Jerusalem that is above, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, now, now you are a son of the promise, and you are free, and you have an inheritance. So with that in mind, let me just read again Galatians 4, and hopefully it makes more sense this time. Because he quoted from Isaiah 54 so as to reinforce his allegorical interpretation. This all getting through? I knew that this was going to be a complicated text, and I'm, I'm doing my very best to not overwhelm you with information, to not make it complicated, to make it as simple to understand as possible, and that at the end we get the main point. And the main point, by the way, is coming in just a second. We are nearly there. But I can't just tell you the main point without giving you the text, because in the text is where we find this depth of rich understanding and the knowledge of God and how our salvation works and what all this other stuff was even for. So we, we start to get a better understanding of it. So he says, Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. We understand that. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. The son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is here and now. She corresponds with that. Whereas, in the other covenant, is associated with the other woman and part of the promise. So it says that she is in slavery with her children, verse 26, but the Jerusalem that, above, that is above, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, is free. She is our mother. For, here's how he can say that, by quoting Isaiah 54, 1. Okay, and we'll come back to that. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Okay, so let's go back to Isaiah 54, and hopefully tie all this together. If you've gotten lost on the way, I want to bring you back home. I'm, I'm lassoing you back in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you back in uh, and hopefully make some application here that, that I think is, is very simple with, with the simple idea in place. Okay? Go back to verse 11 with me in Isaiah 54. And it says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your 
gates of carmuncles and all your wall of precious stone and all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. Okay, so going through all of this, we understand that there is a city being described that is not the present Jerusalem. But he says it's the Jerusalem that is above. It is not the Jerusalem that is below, that is here. It's a different place, even though both are called by the name Jerusalem. That's why it's somewhat confusing. Which Jerusalem are we talking about? Like the Jerusalem we can drive through right now? Or, well, you can't drive to Jerusalem anyway. The Jerusalem that you can go to? Or is he talking about another place? And the, the, the issue is that he's talking about another spiritual location that is also called Jerusalem, the true fulfillment of all that Jerusalem never could be, but will be someday. And he's saying in this city, it will be beautiful and it will be protected forever and all those who dwell there will be taught by the Lord and they will have peace forever, forever. So then what about this whole thing? Remember I told you I was gonna come back to it, that the woman for a time was cast off right? Remember that? She was cast off and neglected, and he was angry with her, but now he's angry no longer. How did that happen? It happened through the work of the servant. This is why it flows after chapter 53, is because the servant did what the floodwaters of Noah did to the whole earth. He satisfied the wrath of God so that now we could be at peace. We needed to have God's wrath satisfied in order for him to be at peace. But with this city, well, it's also kind of this situation where the city literally was forsaken, wasn't it? Because the city was about to be ravaged by the Babylonian Empire, and they were going to destroy everything. So in that sense, it was abandoned. But then he's saying, maybe this is to show you that what I have in mind is actually not even of this earth. What I have in mind is heavenly and is from above. It is not even of this earth. And it corresponds to that, but it is not the Jerusalem below. It is the Jerusalem to come. And, uh, and so he says, he begins to describe more about this city in verse 14. Its inhabitants are going to be all children of God. That's true. They will have great peace. That's true. Verse 14. In righteousness, you shall be established. You will be far from oppression. You shall not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near to you. And if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. Now, here we have in verse 17 an often quoted passage, I think many times in songs, for example. And it says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. Now, you know that, you know that, don't you? You've heard that before. Now, who's the you that it's referring to? You? So context matters. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And here it is, finally, at the very end, we start to gain perspective because it says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So all of a sudden, we realize that all of this was for God's servants. God's servant, who we read about in 53, 52 and 53? No, God's servants. It is plural now. Because now those who serve the Lord are going to be many. There are going to be many children who serve the Lord, and their inheritance is this great city. That makes sense? There is a great city that is to come. 
and it will be the inheritance of all the children of God. And you will live there forever in perpetual peace, protected by God himself, and his covenant of peace will never end with you, and it will remain for all eternity. And it is compared with nothing that you have ever known. It will be yours forever. So we might have questions in, in trying to gain our perspective of all that, that has happened throughout redemptive history and, and Israel's purpose and the city. And, and by the way, you know, maybe I assume too much. Jerusalem means what? City of peace. It, because it is the city of peace, it is going to be the city of peace. And it will be the permanent residence of the children of God for all eternity. That is true but not in the present form that we understand it, for it is the Jerusalem that is from above, not the one below. Here's how I want to leave you uh, today. It's going to come, f- again, from, from Hebrews, and uh, I, I don't want you to leave today without some kind of application of, okay, we read a text today. You, you're going to go home, maybe, and someone's going to say, oh, what was the sermon about today? And you're going to say, well, listen, uh, it was about a barren woman and a city and stones. And uh, there were, okay, it was Abraham and Sarah. And okay, I just have to admit, I don't know what it was about. Or just, you know, what was the point? What was the application you walked away with? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I don't want to leave it there. All this is very important to understand. If it were not important, guess where it would not be found? There you go. So, We know it's important because why? Because there it is. It's in the scriptures. And so how do we understand all this and what does it have for us? How is it instructive to us? What does it do for us? I don't want to leave you hanging with that. And so I I want to bring out some application here as we read in Hebrews 11. And so we're going to end in Hebrews 11, okay? Hebrews 11, verse 8. You're talking about a city. You're talking about a people. You're talking about an inheritance. What does all this have to do with anything? It says, by faith, Abraham. Now, we know Abraham because we just talked a lot about him. He obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And so he went out. He was, but he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Oh, good. He received that then as, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that had foundations whose designer and builder is God. And if the designer and builder is God, who is not the builder? People. So do you see how this relates to what we had established earlier, that there were sons of the flesh by human effort, and then there were sons of the promise through God's sovereign activity and his work, right? You you see that comparison, right? And so it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, and when she was past the age, she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, as good as dead because they were old, they were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many innumerable innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But they went to the promised land. How could you say they didn't receive what was promised? Because that wasn't the end of the promise. That wasn't the point. The point is something that is to come. 
not something that they could attain here with their hands. It was something that was to come. These all died in faith, having, uh, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, they greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And ah, there's, that's case in point right there. They weren't even talking about that land. They knew that there was a land, there was a city that was coming that they weren't going to touch and see and feel until it was eternity. They knew, and so they considered themselves always exiles on the earth, always. So as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one, and if it's heavenly, what is it not? Earthly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What? He has prepared for them what? A city. Excellent. I told you we were going to end there, and I just flat out lied. Uh, I suppose, because I actually forgot that I, I, wanted to, I wanted to give you one more here, because I was thinking about when we were, we were going through uh, Philippians, how important this, this idea was for Paul in communicating to the Philippians. Do you remember that? He wanted to make sure that as they live their lives, they understand, you must understand, that as you live this life, there is something better to come for you. There is something better than what you see, what you can touch, what you can experience. There is something better for the children of God. There is something better to come, and if you don't live with that perspective, you are not going to live the life that God has intended for you. You must have a perspective on your life that is this. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me, Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you, they now walk with tears. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. That's the left-hand side. How should we, on the right-hand side of things, in the new covenant, children of the promise, how should we conduct ourselves here? Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So I hope that what you're seeing here is that we need to have a particular mindset that, yes, is common among all the people of God, is that we don't belong here and we should feel it, and we should know it, and we should embrace that idea. And the quicker you embrace that idea, the quicker you are going to have your life match the place where you belong. And as it was for them, don't citizens and those of a city find their identity kind of in their city? You say, for example, I'm from Sparta. And they say, oh yeah, so you know how to yurt then? So you don't even know means you're not from Sparta. I'm also not from Sparta, but I have learned. Why? Because I became a citizen and I learned the things that the citizens here know. And you become like where you live, yes? In the same way, we should now be considering ourselves as citizens of that city that is to come. We don't even belong here. This is not our true home. This is not where I identify. I'm not like these people. I'm not going to conform to the world. I'm going to conform to the city that is to come. That's where I belong, the city that is formed in righteousness. And so I should be righteous. 
and I should have peace because I will forever have peace where I'm going. So my life should be reflective of that city that is to come, which is promised to all those who have faith in Christ and are children of God, based upon what? The work, the servant of God, Jesus Christ, has accomplished for us. Okay? So I, I hope that came full circle for you. If it did not, I would so love to have a conversation with you about these things and have a further understanding of it because you know what? How can I contain all these things in one sermon? I can't. And it was even a long sermon and I still can't do it. So uh, there is much to be said, much to be gleaned, and I hope that you're taking uh, some of this home with you today and your perspective on your citizens, your citizenship and your life has, uh, has changed, come more into focus, okay? We're gonna pray together. We're gonna sing one more song, okay? Let's pray.